How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 356 of X-Lapsed, where I wasn't planning on doing this episode today. Um, this is a, more a case of me wanting to get the taste of Marauders Number 2 out of my mouth, <laughs> because, wow, that was like a, uh, a brick wall, in a way. Um, a little peek behind the curtain. Uh, since I've come back, I, I kind of came at this with a little bit of a different methodology wherein I kind of batched my work, you know, I, I batched uh, scripts, you know, I, there were days where I was writing three or four scripts in a day, or at least getting down my main thoughts and, and you know, the heavier bits of the synopsises, you know, getting, getting everything on paper just to kind of remove one of the steps in the process. So if and when I felt up to recording, I didn't have to, like, do anything before I hit record. You know, everything was kind of there. I could kind of just roll with it. There was no muss, no fuss, and I, I really uh, found that I enjoyed going about it that way. Uh, it really took a lot of the pressure away from, you know, having to wake up at 3.34 a.m., writing a script, recording that script, getting everything done before my day actually starts. So this was a, a nice little way to break things up, break up the workload. And I intended to do that for this next batch, too. Um, the last batch I did was, I believe, episodes uh, 141 to 153 or so. And this next batch I wanted to do one, uh, 354 to around 361, which would get us up to the Free Comic Book Day uh, Judgment Day deal. And I really started with the best of intentions here. I, I got in with uh, Immortal X-Men number two. Really, really liked it. It's just the next book was Marauders number two, <laughs> and uh, like I said uh, during last episode, that one took me several attempts just to get through. I had that book on the top of my stack for almost a week. I It was just a brick wall that I kept running into, and uh, when I finished it finally, and I was able to record it and release it, the last thing I wanted to do was look at another comic book. It, it almost turned me off completely from the hobby, which I can acknowledge sounds very extreme. <laughs> and um, it's not something I would usually say about a single book, but... And I mean, it's not as though the book was like a crime against humanity or anything. It just had that perfect storm of stuff that I just do not like. And it made me just want to stop. I, I kind of had to, like, force myself into... Scripting the the book we're going to discuss today, which thankfully was a really really good book So it, it kind of scripted itself there toward the uh, you know getting into like a quarter of the way through It's like, okay, 
we're back. You know, this is a good one. No worries anymore. So fingers crossed that, you know, each subsequent issue of Marauders isn't the same sort of uh, brick wall. <laughs> but, um... And fingers crossed, we will do the best we can. Uh, let's get into today's book here. Uh, we are talking about X-Men Red Volume 2, Number 2. Had a June 2022 cover date. The story's called Man on Fire, written by Al Ewing. With art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Federico Blee, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Muller and Bowen, edits Amaro white Sabolski. cover price $4. This one went on sale, allegedly, May 18th of 2022. And we open in Flashback Land. We're at Summer House, where we're still trying to dig ourselves out of that Petra and Sway hole that uh, Jonathan Hickman's absentee editors dropped us in a couple years ago. And I mean, hey, those photos of their lunch plates aren't going to take and share themselves, right? Anyway, Vulcan is here, and we've got that trio of aliens we met during the Empire cash-in issue from the Hickman run of X-Men. And, uh, of course, these are the ones who maybe saved Vulcan from dying during one of those Shi'ar miniseries. Is this is Kingbreaker? I don't know. Emperor Vulcan? One of those. Uh, Annihilation? One of, uh, cosmic stuff. You know me and cosmic stuff. Not really my cup of tea. So it was one of those, I'm thinking. Um, now, this is just a bit of uh, helpful backstory in order to remind us that Vulcan never actually died. And also to explain why he still believes that he has a claim to the title of the Emperor of the Shi'ar. Of course, they thought he was dead, so they replaced him with Gladiator. Gladiator gave the, the throne to Xandra. Yada, yada, yada. Anyway, his little, uh, well, he's laying here on like a, a weird, like, papasan or something here. And he's interrupted by the arrival of Petra and Sway, who uh, offer him some margaritas. Uh, Cyclops and Xavier are also there, and they're only there to tell him that, due to Wanda's waiting room gimmick, Petra and Sway could finally be brought back. Which is kind of shocking news to Vulcan, since he already sees them there anyway. Now, if you remember, their prior appearance, at least their first prior appearance, was supposed to be Vulcan's hallucination. Only, they kind of mangled it in the execution. And, of course, that's also ignoring the fact that uh, one of them showed up as a trainee in an issue of New Mutants from, like, a year ago. So, whoops. Um, I'm guessing that maybe this was another case of, like, hey, let's check the Marvel Wiki for an obscure mutant. Maybe? I don't know. Anyway, worth noting, in addition to Petra and Sway, Xavier name drops Changeling as someone who could come back due to this waiting room thing. Thing of it is... He also made an appearance in the background of a crowded Krakoa scene pre-waiting room. Should, should I just keep talking about absentee editors or just move along? I guess I'll never get invited to all the cool X parties if I do, so we'll just we'll just move on to uh, to an info page. Here, Xavier writes a bit to the Quiet Council about poor old Gabe and his broken mind. He refers to Vulcan's imaginary friends, Petra and Sway, and how they refer to him as the Emperor. Also, how he's a drunk, how he refuses to leave Summer House, so basically it's time for some tough love. He's going to get the boot. Back to comics, and Vulcan is not too keen on this idea, so... Well, he blows the place up. I think. Um, now, it looks like he really does a number on the, like, the Summer House habitat, and I guess it's a good thing that nobody really lives here anymore, right? And I guess that's equally handy when we remember that Dan Slott temporarily destroyed the moon altogether in the Reckoning War. Not that any of the editorial offices are on the same page about any of that anyway. From here, 
Double page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters today include Storm, Magneto, Sunspot, Brand, Cable, and Vulcan. Back to comics, and we jump forward to the present. Here, Vulcan is being welcomed to Sword Station 2's The Keep by Abigail Brand. Now, she's here to introduce him to his new team and his new, like, purpose in life, I suppose, X-Men Red. Now, since they don't get a roll call of their own, I'll just uh, name them here. We got Mentalo, Frenzy, Random, Manifold, and Cable, who is the field leader of the team. Now, Vulcan seems a little bit peeved not to be the leader himself, and also having to answer to his nephew. Now, Frenzy doesn't seem to like Vulcan being added to the team one bit, and in fact, she's just not a fan of the idea of having an Arako-based X-Men team at all. And Bran tells her that this is all about Krakoa-Arako relations here. Just consider it almost diplomacy, right? A Manifold, he agrees with Frenzy, suggesting that, you know, if Arako wants their own team of X-Men, by all means, let them put a team together. He then quits the crew. He's like, I'm done, I'm out. Uh, now, Eden does ask an inconvenient question of Brand about the uh, whereabouts or fate of Henry Gyrick, which Brand kind of shrugs off. Eden pretty much tells Abby that he does not trust her before porting out to go rejoin the Avengers or something. To which I say good luck with that, because going by the current Avengers crap, chances are Manifold will be stuck on a team with like a half dozen multiversal versions of himself. Anyway, with Eden gone, Brand turns to the rest of the crew and says, like, Hey, let's say you did find out I killed Gyrick. Would anybody have a problem with that? And of course they wouldn't, because Gyrick's a dick. This chat is interrupted by an incoming emergency message from WizKid. And, uh, I gotta say it right here. Thank whoever it is you pray to, because Abigail does not say to me my X-Men. So a huge thank you to Al Ewing for that. Uh, our scene shifts to the Morrowlands, which is an area of Mars Araco occupied mostly by artists and poets. Kind of like an Araco uh, or an Iraqi hippie commune, which is pretty interesting considering how the Iraqis are uh, framed as like this warlike people, these just battle-worn, just always fighting, everything's combat, everything has to be fought for and won in battle, so it's, it's pretty cool to see that there is another side to that coin. Now, these hippies are under attack by the Progenitors. Now, the Progenitors are a boring, generic-looking race of aliens who Ewing introduced in Royals, which was a short-lived series about the boring, generic Inhumans. Cable body slides the team into position and is killed within the span of a page and a half. <sighs> so, hmm, is Cable going to be this book's Quentin Choir? I guess, uh, I guess we'll wait and see. Anyway, the battle scene looks pretty dire. Uh, Vulcan grandstands a bit before being entombed in a clot of snow and ice with the arrival of Storm and the Brotherhood. Now, our crew here is Storm, Magneto, Sunspot, and the Fisher King. And it looks like these hippies are quite the fans of the Fisher King. And actually, they're pretty big fans of the Brotherhood as a whole. And I gotta say, they make the X-Men Red Team look like a bunch of goobers in comparison. Now, uh, the Brotherhood wind up beating the Progenitors with the power of... Song... Well, well, they kind of they they distract them with that. Uh, then Magneto, you know, takes them out with a snap of his fingers. As the dust settles, Vulcan thaws out and he beelines it towards Storm, so we can play out the scene that we see on the cover of the book. Now, of course, he is spouting off about never having died, which seems to be his go-to battle cry thus far. Storm goozles poor Gabe and mentions to him that he contains a flaw, and of course, this is not the first time we're hearing of that. 
From here, we go to an info page, and it's from the Live Journal of Abigail Brand. She references Orbis Stellaris, who were, you know, selling Gyric weapons during the latter half of Sword Volume 2. And it's pretty much plainly stated that this whole progenitor thing was an Abbey setup, unless I'm reading it completely wrong, which is always a possibility, but I think this was all a setup. Uh, now, she's happy that Cable won't remember much of this post-resurrection, and she references using this opportunity to learn a little bit more about his T.O. virus, which you might imagine would be useful to Orcus and post-humanity, maybe, or maybe just something that she has designs on. Uh, she mentions the Orcus hierarchy, saying something about their having a Judas. Not sure if that's a biblical reference to a potential traitor, or... Perhaps it's a nod to Judas Traveler, who we sort of kind of saw over in Giant Size Thunderbird. She also says how she mustn't underestimate Karima What's-Her-Face, the Omega Sentinel, and also how she probably shouldn't underestimate Storm. Now, she says that she thought she'd be getting the Queen of Wakanda version of Aurora, which is to say, a relatively powerless figurehead, right? Instead... What she got was the Queen of the Morlocks version of Aurora, who uh, kicked ass on the front lines to protect her people. You know, anytime Chris Claremont remembered that she was actually in charge of the Morlocks. Anyway, from here we go to our ending, where Vulcan gets his next orders, and those orders are to kill Tarn the Uncaring. That's where we leave it. Next episode, more hentai helmet hoopla in the pages of X-Force. But uh, for now... Let's talk a little bit about this book, which I very much enjoyed. I want to say, to kick things off here, that I really appreciate the work, or the effort in, in general, that Ewing is putting into fixing the Petra and Sway boner. It's the sort of thing that really ingratiates me to a creator, when they actually put a little bit of effort into explaining how things fit. Especially when, I mean, it's such an obvious uh, continuity hiccup. I mean, usually when folks like us point those things out, we get creeps like Tom Brevoort hopping on social media to call us losers for doing so. I remember um, Avengers Assemble came out around the time of the first Avengers movie, and they had the, basically the movie team was, you know, the team. And Bendis wrote it because, of course, Bendis wrote it. It was a movie book, and Bendis always was able to finagle his way into the, uh, to the movie books. We were told that this book was in continuity, even though it really didn't so much fit here. I mean, it had the Hulk as part of the team, and this is before, you know, we all forgot that the Hulk and the Avengers hated each other and their team-ups were very, very sparse. But, uh, yeah, Bendis told us that this was in continuity, and when somebody asked him, like, how does this fit and where does this fit, he mocked them online for caring about the book they just spent money on. Which, uh, dick move, first of all. Uh, second of all, it really shows how much interest that Marvel has in actually having a cohesive continuity. And uh, so to see that a little bit of effort is going into making this work here is very, very refreshing. Um, I mean, of course, on the other side of this coin here, imagine if we actually had attentive editors and knowledgeable writers in the first place, well, then we wouldn't have to waste pages on it now. Um, you know, I really think that Marvel and mainstream comics altogether would benefit greatly by hiring a continuity cop. You know, there's got to be a current-day Mark Gruenwald out there who could uh, maybe keep track of this kind of stuff. Is Peter Sanderson still in the game? Could we get him to maybe look at some of these books? I, I guess the alternative to that is, uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, making editors do their jobs. Or, you know, maybe that's not fair. That's not fair. Maybe 
you should empower the editors to be able to tell the bulletproof superstar genius writer that they've got on the book that they made a mistake. I know that's not in fashion anymore, and I know it's kind of extreme of a suggestion, but uh, I don't know. Anyway, and I mean, at the end of the day here, it's not as though hundreds of mutants died before the Shi'arification of Cerebro, right? The list of mutants who could not be brought back is very, very short. <laughs> it's a changeling, Petra, Sway, Thunderbird, and what, like Larry Trask? And that's friggin' it. That's five characters who are on the do not bring back list. And three of them came back before the waiting room gimmick. How does that happen? It's kind of a sad state of affairs here. And unfortunately, you know, very, very few of us care, right? So, I mean, that's what it all comes down to. Uh, let's get on to the actual book here, outside of the, you know, the Vulcan stuff here. I really, really loved the dialogue between, or the exchange between Manifold and Brand. I love how Manifold immediately quits this team. He already, he, like, he smells a rat. He's a smart dude. We've already established that he's a very smart, very keen-eyed guy here, so he knows that there's something to miss here. But I can't help but think that he's being played. Um, I, I think this is uh, some very subtle storytelling, if, at least if I'm reading it right. Because, uh, you know, Brand, she seems perturbed that he's leaving, right? She seems annoyed that he doesn't trust her. But at the same time, she really doesn't go out of her way to stop him. Now, again, this I, this could be me reading into something here, but it's almost as though, to me, that she wants him not to be there because he is, you know, such a bright guy and he will speak, you know, truth to power. He's going to question her authority. So she doesn't want him there, and what's more... She wants it to be his decision to leave. So she can be like, oh, shucks, I really wanted him on the team, while at the same time kind of reaping the benefits of his not being there. She's got deniability in his, uh, his absence, which I really dig, and I hope that that is the direction we're going in here. I'm kind of uh, less favorable about Cable dying so quickly and so easily, but... You know, I'm trying to wrap my head around some of the subtlety, like I said here. Part of me wonders if he's just there to play a certain role. Part of me is wondering, because Cable has proven himself to be, you know, I mean, he's been called like the greatest soldier on the planet several times in this era here, usually from Hope, which, I mean, she is biased, of course. But, I mean, it stands to reason that Cable is, I mean, he is the ultimate soldier. And a master tactician, he, you know, he knows he's got plan Bs, he's got contingencies, he, he is always prepared. So him dying within the span of, like, four panels is weird, right? And uh, it makes me think that it might be a little too weird. Maybe we're supposed to notice that Cable was taken out so quickly. I wonder if maybe he's already sensing that there's more to Brand than she's projecting. I wonder... If maybe he's just trying to make sure she sees him as someone she can trust, or someone just so stupid that she wouldn't even waste her time distrusting him. I really don't know. And of course, I could start ranting about the devaluation of life and death again, but I mean, <laughs> at this point, what's there is no point at this point. It's just, uh, just the way things are. Now, speaking of filling roles, um, let's juxtapose the Brotherhood with the X-Men Red here. I feel like, you know, there's a very intrinsic um, collaboration in the Brotherhood here. They all have been brought together to do something, 
I don't want to say specific because it really it hasn't been laid out as such. Uh, Storm and Magneto, they they do have a goal. They they're there to kind of maintain things. They're kind of there to sort of kind of be diplomatic, um, but doing it in a different way than Brand is doing it with the with the X Men team. The X Men team feels like they are uh, sort of being like repurposed. Into these roles and positions Of course they all came from the sword series That we just wrapped up But it seems like they're kind of. This is like just the other thing They're being told they have to do um, Mentolo He doesn't look like he cares either way He looks like he's just uh, he, I mean he's a mercenary He's being paid to be there And he's just gonna do what he's told To keep cashing the checks Frenzy, like Manifold Doesn't really seem to see the benefit of having this team um, Early on here she mentions How you know she just wants to go back to her the, the diplomatic end of it She doesn't want to Be in this kind of it, it almost feels like a figurehead kind of role here It's like we are your protectors You will accept us And Frenzy seems to believe that she could do more good Behind the scenes as a diplomat Like she was doing during the sword series And, and you know it's kind of interesting We also had that bit in the info page where uh, Brand talks about uh, the different versions of Storm The one that was the, you know, the Queen of Wakanda And then the one that was the Queen of the Morlocks Where one was very much a figurehead Very much there in a very diplomatic way uh, I mean, the entire Storm Black Panther wedding was part of like the Civil War ceasefire You know, it was uh, very, very weird Weirdly placed and Seem to be very politically motivated Just like this team of X-Men is It seems to just be like We are we are your saviors We are the ones who are going to protect you And uh, like I said, Frenzy Seems to uh, believe that she's more useful In the, you know, kind of behind the scenes Diplomatic role, which she's been You know, portrayed in for a little while now A random Well, random is random In, in just about every permutation of the word He's just a dude who's there He's been a good guy, he's been a bad guy He's been... Low level, he's been medium level He's never been high level, but he's just a dude who's there He's filling a role And of course we've got Cable And I've already kind of theorized on Cable's role on this team And we did get a call from Wizkid And uh, I'm sure we'll see Wizkid in the next couple of issues Oh, and I mean, of course we have Vulcan as well Who is... Well, Vulcan is, uh, is, is going through some stuff right now But to contrast that team with the Brotherhood, it's very, very interesting uh, Because, like I said, the Brotherhood seems very intrinsically motivated here They are doing something they actually believe in, rather than filling roles And uh, it seems as though, like, the hippie commune could kind of (laughs) tell Where our red team shows up, and it's kind of like a blustery mess a lot of posturing, a lot of, you know, we are superheroes type of stuff here And then, I mean, Cable gets taken out it, it, The fight just does not go well It's almost as though there's more to protecting the people than posing for a uh, invisible camera But when Storm and the Brotherhood and the Fisher King show up It's like they're welcomed with open arms here And they show that they are people of the people They allow the poets and the musicians to use their own gifts to stop these boring, generic alien robot things Really, really cool stuff And I am definitely looking forward to more Especially if we're bringing in, like, Tarn the Uncaring I, I think this is, uh, is going to be very, very interesting moving forward So 
think that's about all I have to say about the issue. I highly, highly recommend this book. Uh, between this and Immortal X-Men, uh, we've got uh, some pretty decent flagships here. And we also have a couple of writers who I really, really trust uh, to take these books somewhere special in the future. So, high recommendation for this one. I encourage you to check it out, and I also encourage you to reach out and chat me up about it. You can find me several different ways. On Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics, Instagram, 90s X-Men. You can shoot an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or call into the hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Of course, the complete audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com and anywhere you find noise on the internet. But I think that's going to do it for me for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing your ears with me and allowing me to rant, rave, and whatever it is that I do right into your brain. It really does mean the world to me. So thanks again, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.